morning and welcome to Rising. Joined today by the lovely Brianna Joy Gray. Good morning, Brianna. Good morning, Robbie. It's good to be back, especially with those kinds of compliments rolling off the tongue. <laughs> well, hopefully we're going to have a better taping today. We had some technical issues, but we're back. The team worked it out. Very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. uh, what are we going to discuss? Um, well, let's jump right in. Unfortunately, to this tragedy in Colorado, charges have been filed against 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich following a deadly shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs. Five people were killed and 25 injured Saturday night at Club Q. Aldridge now faces five counts of first-degree murder and five charges of committing a bias-motivated crime. Aldridge is reportedly the grandson of GOP California State Assemblyman Randy Vopel and was arrested in June of 2021 for a bomb threat. Police found him with explosives and multiple weapons. So we'll get into more about why Aldridge was able to evade Colorado's gun laws with advisor at the National LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce and Public Policy policy advocate Jonathan Lovitz. For now, we wanted to just talk about what we know happened that night. 15-year Army veteran Richard M. Fierro, who was at Club Q with his wife, daughter, and friends, subdued the gunman in an act of heroic bravery. According to a New York Times account of what happened, 45-year-old Fierro tackled Anderson and beat him with his own gun. Quote, as he held the man down and slammed the pistol down in his skull, Mr. Fierro started barking orders. He yelled for another club patron, using a string of expletives to grab the rifle, then told the patron to start kicking the gunman in the face. A drag dancer was passing by, and Mr. Fierro said he ordered her to stomp the attacker with her high heels. The whole time, Mr. Fierro said he kept pummeling the shooter with the pistol while screaming obscenities. Just a note, someone who was reportedly at Club Q during the shooting tweeted, the one who saved my life and stomped the shooter's face was not in fact a drag queen. She's a trans woman. Let's not call trans women drag queens during this time of grieving, grieving over a transphobic attack. The they go on to say, I also want to make it clear, I don't think Richard knew that she's not a drag performer, but now that we know, let's correct it. Uh, writer Robert Evans said of the attacker, quote, we should see pictures of the Colorado Springs shooter as he was taken to the hospital. We should see him badly injured and plugged into equipment. Doing so will help scare other shooters out of action. I don't know if that's true. But uh, uh, my main reaction was... Um, Maybe this guy can do a training session, the, the <laughs> guy who, uh, who took down the killer mm -hmm, for Uvalde right. police, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps. Yep. This is, he, he, and he, you read an interview, I read an interview with him. It's fantastic. He said, right, right, I know you rushed the shooter, and he had military training, obviously, which certainly helps. Um, he was there with his family, we should note, uh, with a wife and a daughter. Um, confronted the shooter, took him down, hero, bravo, etc. Um, and then, unfortunately, now, when the police arrived, they thought he was maybe involved. Or was the, So they, I think they detained him. They put him in a police car, which was pretty horrible because he didn't know if his family was okay and they were injured. Um, they're, they're okay. They, they mm -hmm. were injured, though, in, the, mm -hmm. in what was going on. So he was quite worried for them while he was being yeah. detained. Um, I guess... You can understand why the police make that kind of judgment sure, at the moment, but good, what, good for him good, for doing what you're him. supposed to do. It's good that it didn't end more poorly, his interaction with the police, given sure. what we know. But look, at the end of the day, here's yet another situation where the person who adverted a tragedy was not the police, yeah. but a random citizen. And frankly, one that doesn't necessarily fit the profile of what 
I think a lot of people who imagine these scenarios uh, imagine. There is a question that's often raised, especially in the climate we're in now, where there's been a lot of scrutiny of drag shows like this one and the people who go to them. Uh, you know, what kind of what kind of family brings their children to a drag performance? Well, this is a man whose entire family was at this drag performance, who is undeniably heroic. And I do wonder how, what, how, what that's going to do to the nature of the conversation and the description of the event um, from the political circles that are typically less sympathetic to these shows in general mm -hmm. and to people who would bring their families to them. Well, let's see. What did uh, what did Tucker actually have to say about it? Can yeah, we, we do. We do have a clip from, of course, Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson about the incident last night. Let's take a look. But it didn't stop with gun control, because, in fact, the Second Amendment is not the freedom that threatens the people in charge the most. No. That would be the First Amendment, which is your right to say what you sincerely believe. That is the right, the first in our Bill of Rights, that terrifies them the most. Your words are a greater threat than any firearm. They must censor you or else they lose power. It is that simple. So these horrifying murders in Colorado over the weekend quickly became a pretext for yet more censorship of your speech. You are responsible for this, they told you, because you said the wrong things. You are guilty of stochastic terrorism, inspiring violence by your beliefs. Anderson Lee Aldrich committed mass murder because you complained about the sexualizing of children. Every time you object to drag time story hour for fifth graders or point out that genital mutilation is being committed on minors, which it is, every time you say that, you are putting people's lives at risk. Now, that seems implausible, and yet many are making this claim. Many have made it over the past 24 hours. Yeah, so there is a lot of blaming of conservative rhetoric about drag queens and children being at these kinds of events on social media right now from liberals, mainstream people, saying that it's conservatives' fault for railing against these things and it invites violence against them. There's also a lot of connecting to Elon's decision to let back on a lot of Hmm. Um, Right-wing people are being brought back on um, Twitter. James Lindsay was brought back on. I think Project Veritas was just brought back on. Donald Trump obviously just brought back on. Um, Kanye, Jordan Peterson. Yeah, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I mean, I agree with Tucker on the point that I, and I've said this on the show before, I, I want to be very careful about you know, casually blaming people who, for criticizing something and then like that's inviting violence necessarily. Um, it, it, that gets you to a very yeah. disturbing place. We're not—you uh, you should be allowed to criticize um, these events and these practices, you know, without without the implication that you're then somehow responsible it, for something, yeah. something that ha happens. I guess, I guess the question I'm not saying is, I share the criticism. I'm just— Yeah. Is there a line—and I was thinking about this because I think that that is a principled stance. And— you know, the connection between these things is very attenuated. Does there, is there a line? Maybe it's not here, but is there a line between saying you disagree with a, an event or even a, a way of life and talking about it in a way that is dehumanizing and in a way that could potentially actually legitimately be described as making antagonist to that person, community, or event more likely to be targeted for violent acts because the person who's acting no longer sees the person as their equal or really mm -hmm. hu human in, in, in the way that we want them to. Well, conservatives who object to this are very 
I think it's very bad and wrong and unhealthy for children to be at events where there is stripping or sexualizing going on. I don't think that's necessarily a crazy—I don't think that describes I, all of these right. things or what was going on exactly. there. A lot of these events are not sexual in nature, and I problem? think that line should be drawn. Isn't that the problem, that if an event like this, mm -hmm. which as far as we know was not stripping or sexual in nature, is targeted— perhaps in, in the context of all of these criticisms being made. And again, we're, we'll continue to know more about what happened here, and I don't want to jump to mm -hmm. any conclusions. But, you know, if we understand that the people who are shooters, people who conduct these acts of violence, aren't the most rational folks in the world, you know, is there some responsibility? And I'm really just asking mm -hmm. this question. Is there some responsibility to be very specific in our criticisms and to, to pair the criticisms that people make again, which I don't agree with, but the criticisms people make of drag performances and the like, with ad ad admonitions against acting violently or treating people as anything less than members of our community. There was a version of, like, anti-gay kind of mm -hmm. Christian lingo years ago that said kind of hate the sin, love the sinner. And again, I'm not mm -hmm. <laughs> adopting that but kind you of reasoning, but at very least it seemed to offer some respect for the life of the people that we do. were being discussed. We kinda, I mean, who knows what we'll find out when we find out more about this individual. I mean, you remember the Pulse shooting, yeah. which I remember the you know, rhetoric coming, and it's horrible. Again, it doesn't really matter to me why they, like, the deaths of lots of people it should just be sad and shocking and regardless of, of why, but obviously the, you know, the conversation about that was... It, it appeared to be, it seemed obvious to people, it seemed obvious to me as well, that it was about anti-homophobic violence, and then we found out that it yeah. had absolutely nothing it, to do with that. Yeah. The shooter there was a Muslim extremist right. who had planned to shoot up Disney World which and then went to, like, the next available place yeah. which and is why I think that there, did not know why there were no girls in the Yeah, place, which is why like, I think there's that. been more reservation. <laughs> Biden made a statement that people were upset about, actually, on Twitter, where he said, we don't know what the motive was yet. And a lot of liberals were very angry, but I think that he was taking the lesson from the Pulse shooting, yeah. and I think that's right. Now I think that we know more about the motives, and I think the part of the story that we haven't emphasized in this segment is why has this person, why is the shooter who was fully arrested because of a, of a threat against his own mother a year ago, yeah. last summer, not caught, not caught by the red well, flag that, system yeah. and not captured, and there are some implications that his record was basically resolved because of his relationship hmm. um, to this Republican um, congressman. So we'll definitely yeah, be we're going to talk more, more about, that. about that with a guest later in the show, um, hmm. and I'll have my radar up next. What's on your radar today, Robbie? Well, yesterday I talked about crypto con artist Sam Bankman-Fried's vigorous funding of media organizations. SBF, you will recall, is accused of financial improprieties vis-a-vis -vis his crypto platform FTX that rival the crimes of Enron executives. But throughout his storied rise, and even now during his sudden fall from grace, SBF benefits from rather favorable media coverage. In yesterday's radar, I speculated whether that might have something to do with all the money he's given to media companies, which included many millions million-dollar grants to ProPublica, Semaphore, Vox, and even our friends at The Intercept. Now, I haven't noticed any particular egregiously soft coverage of SBF from those particular outlets, but I have noticed it, and so have many other people, within the mainstream media, where reporters have frequently highlighted SBF's benevolence, his charitable giving, his concerns about preventing pandemics, and so on. Quote, before FTX's collapse, founder poured millions into pandemic prevention, lamented the Washington Post. Most of those initiatives have now come to a sudden halt. Imagine that. Recall that SBF has confessed that all of his charitable giving was merely a front to disguise his win-at-all-cost mentality. He was doing PR, and it worked. 
Now, the most notable example of this is the New York Times, which is generally castigating in its coverage of the tech sector and tech billionaires in general. Just think how it's treated Mark Zuckerberg, how it's treated Elon Musk. But here was the New York Times article on SBF. How Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire collapsed. It is headlined, Mr. Bankman-Fried said in an interview that he had expanded too fast and failed to see warning signs, but he shared few details about his handling of FTX customers' funds. Expanded too fast, failed to see warning signs, ho-hum. Okay, let's compare how the New York Times covered SBF with how it covered another wealthy entrepreneur and innovator. Yesterday, the Times ran a piece on Dave Portnoy, who is the founder of Barstool Sports, an incredibly successful and popular sports and entertainment news website. Portnoy is a loud personality who has been involved in many controversies for allegedly saying offensive things and has also been embroiled in alleged Me Too issues. Fine. Here's the New York Times piece on Portnoy's expansion into the online sports betting and gambling sectors, written by reporter Emily Steele. This is the headline. Desperate for growth, aging casino company embraced degenerate gambler. (laughs) That's the headline. It continues, David Portnoy, who has a history of misogynistic and racist behavior, is now a public spokesman for the sports betting industry. Those are the first few sentences about him. I encourage everyone watching this to read both articles and decide for yourselves if they are fair to their respective subjects. Maybe they are. Look at the headline. Look at the subhead. Look at the framing. It's incredible how much more sympathetic the Times appears to be towards Sam Bankman-Fried than to Dave Portnoy. Portnoy could, by the way, could never hope to be as degenerate a gambler as SBF, who is accused of illicitly gambling away millions of other people's dollars. Did Portnoy steal anyone's life savings? Did he do an Enron? The mainstream media has considerable power to set the agenda. We know that social media companies, for better or worse, take their cues about who is good and who is bad from mainstream voices. So when the media says that X and Y and Z persons are purveyors of disinformation or threats to democracy, Facebook, Google, and until very recently, Twitter, well, those companies paid attention. Now, to be clear, SBF deserves due process. There's still a lot for us to learn about the extent of his alleged crimes, exactly what transpired. It's already pretty clear. In fact, it's transparently obvious. What he's accused of, and he's all but admitted to, is extremely, extremely bad. Is the mainstream media really going to pull its punches this time? Don't pay attention to this. Look what Dave Portnoy's doing. (laughs) So I put these things side by side in a tweet, and uh, it, it went people resonated with it. Um, look, I, and I'm not defending Dave Portnoy. I don't know all that much about him. I, he's, I know that he's a loudmouth and he says really incendiary things. So maybe there's validity to whatever he's being accused of. Not adjudicating that here. I have no idea. But man, was it a mean headline and a subhead yeah, versus well, SBF. I know nothing about Dave Portnoy. I will say the Me Too allegation, they think add a layer of something and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, start to justify the use of the word degenerate. Because that's the most serious not... crime on earth? No, but... And stealing millions of dollars no, no, from no. people I'm is not? I'm talking about the word degenerate in the headline. Okay. I think that it's referring to not, you know, whether or not gambling is worse than... Yeah. Gambling in a casino is worse than gambling in a stock market or a crypto market, mm-hmm. but about the, the other kind of aspects of his personal behavior. That aside, I think it's indisputable that um, Sam Bankman Freed is getting a lot of benefit from the press, not just because it's per, his personal relationship with the press, but because he comes from a class background that the press is very sympathetic to. All of the reporting references the fact that his parents are Stanford law professors. You know, this sector, apparently, this, especially this age cohort, I got to say, like, 
people around my age, elder millennials, there's a lot of uh, mythology around uh, kind of Silicon Valley tech billionaire, that entire world, because it emerged as we were coming into adulthood, you know, um, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was a year ahead of me in college, right? And yeah. that was like the dream. That the, that's the thing that really smart people did. That's the ring that everybody was aspiring to. And I do think that there is a cultural sympathy for people who are engaging in that kind of gambling and are unsuccessful in that world because so many people in the journalistic space in this age cohort are frankly aspiring to be someone like SBF. But Zuckerberg stopped. Get, you're right that he used to get favorable to, media coverage. a lot. And then, then in uh, and 2016, then Russia, Russia happened, and no one has ever said a nice thing yeah. in mainstream media about him since. In fact, he's been really a punching bag. He's yeah. been everything bad that has happened on our society has been blamed on him to a degree that I actually think is like wildly unfair and it's projecting all sorts of other uh, other issues. But um, but but yeah, because the and the, the tech coverage, especially from the New York Times, is apocalyptic in tone. Everything is very bad and very scary, a threat to democracy and purveying misinformation. Every innovation, every new platform, they talk about how hard it will be for their little misinformation beat reporters to pay attention. That was Clubhouse. That was their criticism mm -hmm. of Clubhouse. Oh, no, it's not transcribed. Mm -hmm. How will we stop people from hearing mm -hmm. things we don't want them to hear? Um, it's uh, it's uh, Matt Iglesias uh, has claimed insider knowledge that there's actually there wasn't a literal memo in New York Times to staff, do not cover tech favorably. Tech mm -hmm. is scary and bad. Terrify the readers about it. Um, to the extent that like one of their tech reporters, um, Kevin Roos, I think is his name, does like a once a year post on, well, here's something good about tech. Once a year. <laughs> once a year. Well, I mean, That's how all that stuff gets covered. And then this is like, well, he tried to build an empire look, I, I, I and it didn't that, work out. I believe so that there's sad. negativity about the te tech coverage, but there's also this weird fetishization of a certain kind of tech personality. And we saw this mm -hmm. um, with Elizabeth Holmes. We see this yeah. now with Sam Bankman Fried, where the coverage was often about how he was kind of unwashed and had no haircut and wore T-shirts and, and like yeah. pajamas basically at the office, that he would performatively have That stopped being adorable people, like years ago. Well, apparently not because they're still <laughs> writing the stories about how he performatively would like sleep next to his desk near a, a conference room where mm -hmm. people in the conference room could see him and then, you know, emerge from slumber and come into the meeting and like razzle dazzle. And I don't know what it is. That, that kind of... Uh, behavior has no cultural cachet for me. It seems to me to like really highlight the contrast between how hard other people have to work and how right. other others of us who don't have those same privileges have to show up and like be presentable and have to work so hard to be taken seriously. But obviously, these kind of um, wonder kid stereotypes and stories really resonate with their readership. And I think it distracts them from the reality of what's going on, not just here, but for Elizabeth Holm and a million other characters. Might be working up to dropping the tie, but I will never do this show <laughs> in shorts and a t-shirt with my hair not done. <laughs> we believe that, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> More rising right after this. Stay with us. Twitter CEO Elon Musk says he will not restore the account of so-called Sandy Hook truther Alex Jones, this despite reinstating a cast of once-banned high-profile accounts in the past week, including those of former President Trump, Kanye West, and Jordan Peterson. 
In a tweet justifying the decision, Musk wrote, my firstborn child died in my arms. I felt his last heartbeat. I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain, politics, or fame. Yesterday, Dr. Peter McCullough was trending as users pressured the chief twit to bring the famed mRNA researcher back after his account was banned for spreading alleged vaccine misinformation. Townhall.com Scott Moorefield tweeted, Dr. McCullough and many more still being banned for not being wrong, but for being right before the world was ready. Why are they still being silenced on this platform? According to independent writer Caitlin Johnson, Musk has yet to actually bring free speech back to Twitter as promised. In a recent op-ed, Johnson said, quote, reinstating a handful of celebrities has no meaningful effect on the free expression of normal people. Speech is not becoming any freer on Twitter in any way that actually matters. And from all appearances, it's still functioning as a narrative control tool for the most powerful empire that has ever existed. I don't know that I... Uh, Totally agree with that, but I, I do get the point that we're being a little bit um, arbitrary. It looks to me like who's coming back and who's not, which maybe that's the point. Maybe it's just this is not a democracy. This is a this is a Elon monarchy, uh, and he's just going to decide who gets to come back or not based on what seems like very personal reasons. He was right. saying that he would not allow Alex jo Jones back because he's had the experience of having lost a child. Um, I mean, of course, there are people who've had the experience of losing a child because of like the president's drones and war making sure. policies. So it's that, but Donald Trump's back. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is exactly the reason why the, you know, the commentary that this is not, is not in any way an expansion of free speech is completely right. The very complaint that people had legitimately of Twitter before was that there was no consistency or transparency in the decisions that were being made about who was banned. And now who there's wasn't. transparency, but not consistency. Well, and, it, and there isn't mostly transparency. Mostly it has to do with his independent, random proclivities, thoughts and feelings and Twitter polls. And um, one uh, big account online, she's not associated with anything, but she's a, a big kind of poster, a shoe on head, made this point that this tweet, this admission um, from Elon Musk that the decision to not admit Alex Jones, the fact that he admits that it's entirely due to his personal experience of the tragedy of his own child's death is an admission that it's just whatever Elon Musk wants, whatever Elon Musk wants. It is thinks. whatever Elon Musk That's wants. That's a problem for people who actually wow. have an investment in the free speech interest of those who don't happen to align with whatever Elon Musk has to say. I think it's in some ways, refreshingly honest. Um, it's just, it's his company and the rules are gonna be whatever he wants. And that's how it always was. But there was, it was more confusing and it was unclear and we didn't know. Uh, I think there's a better justification he could have made to be clear for keeping Alex Jones off the platform, but allowing some of these other uh, people back in that in the Alex Jones is the subject of a massive um, lawsuit. A li there are perhaps liability concerns for letting Alex Jones back on, given um, the, the volume of his mis mistruths and how they've been adjudicated and actually have monetary damages. Right, but not for the platform, unless we're getting rid of Section 230 right. all of a sudden. The point is, Alex Jones under, look, I am, this is not me advocating for one position or another, but it's obviously inconsistent. Kanye West did a number of things that exposed him and it caused him to have a, a lot of financial consequences to pay. Donald Trump obviously is a, being accused of provoking an insurrection and is being investigated as a consequence. You can't look at those figures, let them back on the platform and look at Alex Jones and say, because I happen to have experienced a loss that makes me antagonistic to you and what you've done, I'm not going to let you on the platform. That is not free speech. You can say what you want about how it's it refreshingly not free open. Speech. It has nothing to no do disagreement. with it's what not everybody was saying they cared so much about with Twitter, yeah. which is free speech. And what happens... And what Elon said he cared about. 
what Elon said he cared about. And, and like, I don't know. I, I read a, an interesting piece about how what Elon is uh, encountering, there was an, another uh, piece of news about how he uh, is basically halting his verification plan, right? There was a lot of controversy over the past couple of weeks because he enabled anybody to pay $8 to get a verification blue check. Um, seemingly misunderstanding the point of the blue check, which, you know, although over time it has a, a acquired a certain kind of value and status, it's about identifying who you are, saying like, if I my name is Brianna Joy Gray on Twitter, I am in fact Brianna Joy Gray in real life. It wasn't actually about status. He implemented this program. Everyone started mock, you know, imitating everybody. He got very upset because a lot of people had fake Elon Musk accounts. And now he's reverted back to the mean. And what people have observed is we're going to keep seeing this happening. Elon Musk uprooting the policies that were already in effect and then ended, ending up going back to what they were before he became CEO because those policies were there for a reason. And these are some legitimately difficult questions that people have to wrestle with and figure out. And that's not to say that they couldn't be improved upon and don't need to be improved upon. Elon Musk doesn't have the capacity to improve upon them, but randomly blowing everything up um, is going to cause him to get egg on his face and frequently have to retrace his steps and land exactly where the previous CEO was. I think that's true with some of the moderation decisions, but everyone, you know, a few days ago was talking about, oh, this is the end of Twitter. And if you saw that, oh, it's about to go down, it's falling apart. He got rid of too many employees. And seems to be running fine. I don't think it's going to suddenly disappear. I think it will end up ultimately being the case that it didn't need as many, there was too many cooks in the kitchen and it can run fine without them and it's not going anywhere. And he claims that users and engagement and all that is way up. Uh, anecdotally, that seems to be the case with my own tweets. Right, but so. he doesn't make money off of users, and that's the fundamental issue. In fact, he understands Well, he's trying that. to make money off of users. Well, he understands that because when he was buying the company and trying to get out of buying the company, part of the reason, that the excuse that he offered, the rationale, I should say, rather, that he offered was because he wanted to have a subscription model, and finding out that so many of the users were, in fact, not real people but bots meant that there weren't enough real people to pay for the model that would make it profitable. That being the case, now he's bought the site that may or may not still be true, and he has to rely on advertisers, and advertisers have been fleeing. And there was a, a good write-up, I think, in the New York Times about this. They're, what they're saying is they, they pay for ads, and they're seeing it next to a surge in hate content. So yes, Twitter usership has been up, but if you're someone who's just trying to sell you know, free frame, you know, art.com or whatever, <laughs> get people's uh, uh, art framed, you're not going to want to go be, be viewed in a stream next to somebody's hate tweet. Um, or porn, or any of these other kinds of things. That well, but porn was there before. For. It was always right, but it's there. about the algorithm and people making sure that the advertisements are sharing space with those kinds of with those kinds right. of posts. And people are saying it's it's losing the money. I mean, that's from the mouths of advertisers. So again, Elon Musk is going to have to realize that the the thing that he's up against the most isn't some ideologue in the White House, uh, some Democrat who just hates him because they have different politics. It's the advertisers because money talks. That's what all of this is about. Yeah, I don't know if that's totally true. I mean, he might face pressure, and all of these companies have faced massive pressure to delete specific accounts at the behest of the, the White House, the CDC, and the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, I think I think so. But Elon Musk has shown a willingness to let those who like God, God, God bless him, but it's glad. not going to earn him money. It's not going to make his site well, more we'll profitable. We'll because ultimately, the thing that he should be concerned about, and I think he is concerned about having made a $44 billion investment, and his Tesla investment having tanked enormously as he has to draw from that company to help keep Twitter afloat is whether or not he can get the main uh, economic support for the website 
attracted back to the website so that that $44 billion investment doesn't become one of the biggest economic sinkholes in uh, entrepreneurial history. I mean, I don't think we should count him out yet. He's a smart, he is a smart businessman. He seems eccentric. Um, his, his habits of like responding to every single person on Twitter um, are interesting and kind of crazy, but uh, Look, I wouldn't, I'll, I'll I wouldn't be count impressed him dead yet. And I'll consider to, I don't, I'm not interested in him being a smart businessman, which I think is very much a dispute. Him having basically used his family wealth to buy Tesla and not having, having been, a, you know, he's not attributed, none of the innovations that make the, the car company good are attributed to him or his personal intellect. But he can demonstrate his ability not just to be a good businessman, but someone who is thoughtful about these important speech issues that he said he cared about. What he did with SpaceX is pretty in, impressive. By actually digging in and trying to work through what is difficult. Like, smart people thinking very hard have struggled with the question of how to handle content moderation for years. And I think what is more, most disturbing is that you can be as smart as you want, but if you're so hubristic that you think that the, the thousands of people employed by a company, the, 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 the First Amendment lawyers, the, the scholars, the random people, the users who have been struggling with how to make this, pro, this platform better haven't come up with solutions and that you're going to, in the blink of an eye, say laissez-faire, um, free speech absolutism is going to resolve the issue, then— Well, but he's not actually saying free speech absolutism because he just said he's not going to bring Alex Jones exactly. back, right? He's exactly. coming up with his own <laughs> policy, but it could be better than what they came exactly. up with because what they had was very and bad. He's, and he's having to walk a lot of stuff back, and I think that he's going to have to walk a lot of the— um, uh, uh, readmissions to the platform back depending on, on what happens and what happens with advertisers in particular. More rising right after this. Stay with us. The suspect in Colorado's tragic shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub, Club Q, evaded the state's gun laws despite having allegedly threatened his mother with a homemade bomb a year ago. Anderson's past was all the more mysterious due to a name change when the sub subject, uh, suspect sorry, was 16 years old. Before then, he was known as Nicholas Brink. This is according to the Washington Post. While we don't yet know exactly how this name change impacted uh, how his public records were handled, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldridge was not formally charged in last year's incident. And because the case was dismissed, his records were sealed. His previous warning signs have many people asking how this was able to happen because under Colorado's red flag law, Aldrich's firearms can be temporarily seized if a person is deemed a risk. Advisor at the National LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce and public policy advocate Jonathan Lovitz joins us now to discuss. Hello, Jonathan. Hello and good morning. I'm sorry. I wish it was on better circumstances, but it's good to be with you. Yes, good to have you with us. Obviously, uh, a terrible um, a tragedy, which we discussed um, earlier in the show. You know what went on in the in the actual incident, the bravery of the individual um, who actually confronted and stopped the, sh the shooter in the way that is supposed to happen in the in scenarios we're supposed to be able to rely on police to do that. And we've you know often been disappointed by the police response in, in uh, other mass shootings. Uh, but we want to talk a little bit about why this red flag law did not come into play. You know, so many times it seems you have a mass shooting incident. This was true in Parkland. This was true of even some of the more recent shootings that the, the individual is known to law enforcement and had had a, a, a interaction with law enforcement that should have, you know, flagged this person for, uh, for in this case, I think, for arrest. He threatened uh, his mother with a bomb. So what do you make of all this? The, the attack is heinous and horrific and sh uh, has shaken all of us to our core once again. 
Um, but to your point, it also has raised the consciousness around what we can do to make things better, including strengthening these red flag laws, making sure people who have no business having guns or access to dangerous materials have that ability. Um, I think we can expect some action from Governor Polis, uh, the Attorney General in Colorado and others. This is a hate crime, whether you call it a, call it that or not, because an attack on LGBTQ people of any kind is a hate crime uh, and should be prosecuted to the fullest extent. But we've got to zoom out from just the red flag laws uh, affecting those who are directly involved in a shooting like this and look about how we need to red flag some of the speech and rhetoric that has made this possible. There is a clear and direct line to the kind of hateful speech that existed from the likes of a Lauren Boebert, uh, who had the audacity, the gall, to tweet about her uh, thoughts and prayers for the community just days after she tweeted about how we are once again groomers and how trans people are dangerous to America. The red flags need to extend all the way to the lawmakers who are yeah, enraging the community with this kind of disgusting and unnecessary rhetoric. These are fellow Americans. Uh, and this was an attack on what we all call a safe space for the LGBT community. But you know what? Every space in America is supposed to be a safe place. Uh, and LGBTQ people should not have to hide and, in fact, are only going to shine brighter and be more vocal uh, about their visibility to push back on this kind of uh, horrible attack. So we just showed one of the tweets on the screen. AOC had tweeted, Lauren Boebert, you have played a major role in elevating anti-LGBT hate rhetoric and anti-trans lies while spending your time in Congress blocking even the most common sense gun safety laws. You don't get to thoughts and prayers your way out of this. And I don't know if we also have the, some of the tweets that are being referenced to uh, from Lauren Boebert. Uh, she's tweeted in the past. Um, for example, uh, take your children to church, not drag bars. You know, what do you say to people uh, who might say, well, we saw what happened in Pulse, that ultimately wasn't a, uh, he, the shooter wasn't motivated to go there because he knew in advance it was a gay bar. Uh, it's premature to talk about the, the motives here. I mean, what is your response to folks who say that the left is prematurely um, weighing in on, on fault here? That's a lie. It is a absolute and blatant attack on LGBTQ people. Uh, we don't need to wait for motives. You know by uh, what that bar is, what the flags are outside. Uh, and let's also be very clear about what this means in terms of the response that's needed, not just from queer people, but from everyone. LGBTQ people are women. We are people of color. We are veterans. We are immigrants. We have disabilities. There is no such thing as an attack on LGBTQ people that is not an attack on everyone. And if you don't think they're coming to uh, shoot up our bars and attack our marriages on a Monday and not coming for your voting rights on a Tuesday and her body on a Wednesday, you're out of your mind. This is a, a coordinated attack on diversity in America. We are here. We are not going anywhere. Uh, and to try and instill fear in our community and in every community just simply isn't going to work. Allyship is a verb and people are getting ready to roll their sleeves up and work uh, as allies to protect queer people and all people in America because uh, of those who are attempting to whitewash this as just an accident or just a, an, a, a shameful attack due to someone's mental health. That's not the case. I mean, I mean, I think many people will find it, or some people at least, will find it you know, pretty provocative to kind of blame 
Boebert that uh, or, or point to her as being responsible so prominently. We don't know if I don't know if he this individual saw any tweets from 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 Boebert or anyone like that. In the same way, it's now kind of perceived of, to have been a mistake to blame um, you know the the. Uh, the Sarah Palin targeting map for Jared Loftner shooting Gabby Giffords and so on and so forth. Um, and, and as, you know, Brianna brought up the, the Pulse example, um, which was very prejudged, which is not to say any of the, this is horrible regardless of the motive or regardless of who is targeted, but, uh, you know, on such a political issue. But you don't seem to have much pause about going there. No, hate speech is hate speech, whether you tweet it, whether you put it on a T-shirt, whether you put it on a red hat. Uh, hate speech is hate speech, period. And uh, an attack on one is an attack on all communities. And you don't have to incite people to violence. You have to let them know that they are welcome to fear and hate their neighbor. Uh, you know, all of this concern about you know not sending your kids to uh, a drag story hour. Well, the thing kids have to be most afraid of at going to see uh, a drag queen read a storybook is an armed Christian with a gun. Yeah, I mean, so I think that I think that there is definitely a kind of language that Lauren Boebert has engaged in where people are described as groomers for being members of the LGBT community or going to a drag club. And those kinds of environments are described not just as something they personally don't like or something that they wouldn't take their children to, but something more akin to uh, sexual predation. And I do think that opening the door to that, to that kind of language. If you genuinely believed that people were engaging in like want, you know, sex acts with children, then that gets to a place where you might feel like it's justified to to act violently. And we saw some of this rhetoric coming, rhetoric coming out of the abortion movement at a certain time when if you use rhetoric that says, you know, abortion is murder, then maybe there is a connection to people who then just turn around and decide to murder abortion doctors, abortion providers, because you think it's an eye for eye and there's something kind of um, that's like a cyclical justice uh, in it all. But I guess I think what Arabi is asking is, Knowing what we know about Pulse, I guess I'm curious, what do we know about the stated motive so far of the um, uh, of the shooter? I saw that um, uh, Joe Biden, for instance, in an initial tweet had kind of sidestepped the idea of blame, saying that we, we have to we, we're still trying to figure out what motivated him. Um, and then going on, obviously, to offer his apologies. And I saw people pushing back against that. Do we know, do we have any evidence the way that has come out in other shootings over time about what kind of things this person was reading, what kind of politics this person had, um, what was potentially provoking him to, and, and to attack this particular uh, spot? Well, you know, they talk about terrorism being homegrown. This was literally grown in the home. This individual's uncle is a red hat MAGA wearing member of the Colorado legislature. So we know where these ideas come from. Uh, and that is often the heart of the problem is the fact that there aren't people willing to speak up and defend those under attack at the home. Uh, this is going to be a very real conversation for a lot of people going into the Thanksgiving holidays. Do they feel safe at their own dinner table, let alone going back to their hometown? Um, and these are very real concerns right now. So we are going to learn more about the, the shooter's motives, but we also are going to learn a lot more about community responses, both positive and negative. The area around Colorado Springs, if you look at research from the Southern Poverty Law Center and others, uh, indicates that there are a, a, a it is a huge heat map of hate-related rhetoric and violence in that area, that there are multiple hate groups on record in that 
region. This is a growing, festering problem in America, as we know. And again, it's not just against queer people. It's against uh, trans people, people of color, Asian Americans, those with disabilities. This is, this is something that is uh, a dying gasp of those afraid of seeing America change and accept the, the, the diversity all around us. Uh, Igor Volsky, executive director of Guns Down America, called on lawmakers to pass an assault weapons ban as part of the Respect for Marriage Act. In New York, Governor Kathy Hochul is ramping up police support. Sunday, she tweeted, amid recent threats to Jewish and LGBTQ communities, I have directed police to increase support for communities that are potential targets of hate crimes. Here in New York, violence or bigotry will uh, never be tolerated. So what, uh, what you know, policy response would you like to see to instances like this? There is a, not only is there a, a tremendous policy responsibility on lawmakers right now to ensure that we are putting uh, enough public safety officers in visible places where they can protect the community, but also this is a moment for true allyship to all those corporations who are seeking the LGBT community's dollar every year by, by representing us at Pride and in advertising all year long. We need you to step up and be active allies in the fight right now by endowing local communities that you support with the funds and resources to put up more lights, more cameras, more security officers, um, and tempering the fact that we need to be safe and secure in these places, but also not arm them to the teeth. Uh, we're probably going to have to return to a time like we did after polls where backpacks are limited, uh, where we might have to do pat-downs. We hope that that is not forever, but we've got to do what we've got to do to keep our community safe, and it is up to allies. And I'm glad you brought up the New York example, because while this is happening in Colorado, New York City, one of the great bastions for LGBTQ inclusivity in America, is dealing with uh, multiple attacks on queer people there, as well as a brick being thrown through the window of a restaurant, uh, excuse me, of a bar in Hell's Kitchen, one of the great neighborhoods in America. So this can happen literally anywhere. And so we need allies to step up and stand shoulder to shoulder with us, both on, on a political and policy level, but on a practical boots on the ground, looking out for each other level as well. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I know that some people are concerned about the civil liberties uh, uh, implications of expanding their surveillance state the way that uh, Hochul is advocating uh, in New York. Uh, but I'm sure that we can continue to talk about that as those policies are rolled out uh, and to see whether or not they have a, a double-edged sword aspect to their implementation. Thank you again, Jonathan, for joining us today. Thank you all. We'll have more Rising for you after this. A national freight rail strike could be possible in the next two weeks, according to CNN Business. The country's largest rail union, which represents rail conductors, rejected the latest tentative labor deal with freight railroads on Monday. Of the 12 rail unions, eight voted in favor of the deal, four voted against it. If one of those unions go on strike, the other 11 would join and shut down the railroads. Joining us now to discuss is executive director of the American Prospect, David Dan. Welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, David, help us understand what's going on here with respect to why they rejected this agreement. I know we were talking about this earlier prior to the agreement that was negotiated by the Biden administration. Uh, they were looking for principally time off. I believe at issue was uh, the negotiation offered up one day of uh, vacation a year. That seems to have been thrown out. Was that, was that the key issue here still or were there other things going on? 
Well, it could have been anything, right? Because uh, the two main unions, you have uh, the the conductors, which is uh, through a union called SMART, and then you have uh, the uh, other trainmen through a union called, uh, I know that the initials are BLET, it's, it's escaping me, Locomotive Engineers. The Engineers Union, uh, the BLET narrowly supported the contract and, and SMART really narrowly rejected it. So uh, it, it, it really could have been, you know, anything on any side. Obviously, we've seen uh, uh, anger and frustration from train uh, rail workers for uh, the last several years. Uh, over the last six years, about 30 percent of the workforce has been cut. Uh, they are asked to be to do more with less. Capacity has been throttled. Uh, the, 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 rail, uh, the, the giant railroads, of which there are really just a few, uh, want uh, as little as one person on a train per train um, uh, to, uh, you know, maximize their profits and, and lower their, their workforce uh, labor uh, costs. Um, so we're, we're, you know, this is sort of the culmination of uh, uh, really a decade of a, a Wall Street-led effort to maximize uh, revenue within the uh, the rail industry. Hmm. Uh, what's next? Will there be more meetings to try to work this out? I assume a, you know a strike is not something that anyone wants to see, and it'll affect supply chains, et cetera, going into the holidays. Um, is the president getting involved? Um, you know, what is on the table for negotiations? There's a law called the Railway Labor Act that makes it very hard for uh, rail workers to strike. And uh, what can be done in the near term is Congress can pass a resolution that forces the remaining holdout rail unions to accept the terms of the deal. Now, the deal was put together, as you mentioned, by something called the Presidential Emergency Board, a deal put uh, together by, the board is put together by the Biden administration, uh, and then they look at both sides' offers, and then they they, they put together a compromise and and, and ask the, the unions to come to an agreement. But uh, under the Railway Labor Act, it's very hard uh, to get a any kind of uh, labor action going because of the, the, the need to move commerce, at least that's the theory under the bill. And uh, the last time that we saw something like this in 1991, at the last minute, Congress passed the resolution and forced the, the unions to accept those terms. Uh, there's already a resolution out there in Congress. It was put together by Republicans. Uh, there's a little opposition. I know Bernie Sanders opposes it, but not a whole lot. We're doing some reporting on this. Uh, obviously, they have a very short window. Congress is not in session this week because of Thanksgiving. They really only have one week to uh, put together this resolution and pass it through both houses. Uh, and, you know, the president needs to, to accept that. Uh, this is a president who says he's the most pro-labor president in history. Is he going to uh, force unions uh, back to work uh, when the, the majority, even though it's four out of 12 unions, the majority of workers uh, in uh, the rail industry have rejected this contract? Is he going to force them back on the job? David, can you help us understand how, what the mechanism is to force them back to work? Is the issue that they, I mean, when you say that it's very difficult for them to go on strike, what prevents them from simply staying home? 
like I said, well, I mean, that would be a wildcat strike. Certainly right. It would be so you're, you're saying that they're, it's difficult to have a, a, a sanction strike. A legal labor action. Yes, let's say a legal sanction labor action. And I, I don't know that the, the, the unions are going to go there. Uh, if they are forced through a congressional resolution to uh, you know, accept the terms of the contract, I don't know that there's enough solidarity within uh, within those particular unions to then just walk out and, and you know, risk arrest uh, and, and, and stay out of, of work and, and shut down the rail uh, lines. Uh, it's, it's an open question. Um, obviously, well, in theory, yes. Could they do that? Yeah, sure. Uh, but would, you know, we've, we've seen through history uh, a lot of uh, real strife when when rail workers try to do that. There's the Pullman strike uh, and, and, and many other examples throughout history uh, of, you know, uh, presidents sending out the National Guard uh, to, to force uh, rail workers back on the job. Uh, it, it's uh, it would be it would certainly it would not be dull. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about this context, though, because some people would argue that that's exactly the kind of contradiction that needs to be heightened, that if Joe Biden is advertising himself as the most union-friendly president since FDR, and the claims—remember, part of why this story got so much traction in a world where oftentimes union events aren't really co uh, covered is precisely because they're, they're the kind of sympathetic worker that, generally speaking, gets a lot of attention from both parties. It's literally railway workers, the kind of profession that little, little kids— you know, play play with toys and aspire to be when they grow up. And their demands are so narrow, really just asking for like a, a modicum of days off per year as we're in the middle of the holiday season. And on top of all of that, we're seeing that this industry has had this a, a, a extractive influence on it over the last... Um, you know, decade plus, in which the 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 number of people who are actually employed has been cut by an extreme amount. You said, you know, I think it was 22% since 2017. And the people that are left behind are, are being asked to cover the gap so that elites can profit. I mean, this seems like exactly the kind of story that if I were a politician, I wouldn't want to be defending why I am forcing rail workers into these kinds of conditions over a holiday season instead of just ask, uh, giving them the bare minimum that they're demanding. I, I, you know, do we have any evidence that there is any appetite for heightening those contradictions by doing something like a wildcat strike? Well, there is a coalition called the Railway Workers Union, uh, which is not a union. It's it's sort of a, a coalition of some, you know, we have this weird situation where we have like 12 labor unions for just the same industry. We should have one. Uh, and this coalition has 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 been, you know, agitating for you know being more aggressive. Uh, it's worker led. Um, so if anything happens, it would come from there, I would say. Uh, in terms of a wildcat strike or anything like that. Um, th this story certainly should be told. And, and this is the reason why that resolution in September, which was put together by two Republicans, did not pass. Uh, and uh, instead, there was a last minute tentative agreement because it looked like there wouldn't even be that uh, at that time. Uh, this is a 40 year story, right? Since the passage of the Staggers Act, which deregulated rail, uh, at the time, there were 40 class one railroads. There are now seven mm. and really four. Uh, and two of them are in the east and two of them in the west. We, we have a, an effective duopoly throughout the country uh, in terms of rail. And uh, that's why they can get away with cutting the workforce, cutting capacity and raising prices. 
And it's fascinating. You know, we we talked with uh, the head of the Surface Transportation Board. That is the the main rail regulator, is a guy named Martin Oberman. And uh, I've never heard a more aggressive public official say generally like, yeah, these guys are out for profit. They're uh, they're 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 ruining the the work experience of rail. Uh, they're they're really uh, being a, the 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 shippers and and these are companies that are not used to regulation. You know, like the American Chemistry Council, they're backing the union, right? Uh, uh, all these other shipping companies uh, that don't want any regulation in their industry are pushing the Surface Transportation Board to get really tough and serious with the rail industry. Um, this this is uh, a, definitely a story that that has been broadcast over the last several months, but but should be more, especially at this very serious time when you have over half the workers knowing that uh, there, there's a possibility where they'll be forced to return to the job and then they'll have to make that wildcat decision. Uh, they're saying no, they're opting out of this contract. Mm. Well, David Dane, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. All right, thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Bob Iger, formerly Walt Disney's CEO, is returning to run the company. Bob Chapek, who replaced Iger as CEO in 2020, is stepping down immediately. Chairman of the board for Disney, Susan Arnold, said in a statement, We thank Bob Chapek for his service to Disney over his long career, including navigating the company through the unprecedented challenges of the pandemic. The board has concluded that as Disney embarks on an increasingly complex period of industry transformation, Bob Iger is uniquely situated to lead the company through this pivotal period. CNN writes, the news comes after a new report was released that shows Disney's streaming business lost $1.5 billion in the fourth quarter, which sent Disney's stock down after a year of, quote, sluggish to bad performance. When explaining his decision to leave back in 2020, Iger said, quote, I started listening less. I became a little bit more dismissive of other people's opinions than I should have been. And that was an early sign. It was time. Hmm. But he's back. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, the Disney ship has uh, needs writing, I guess. I think the biggest problem is, uh, well, one of their problems, at least, is uh, the content has not been <laughs> as good mm-hmm. lately. Um, post, uh, Post-Endgame, the kind of Marvel Universe stuff is a little bit less exciting than it's been. Um, the Star Wars stuff has been not as good. Um, I heard the newest, Andor, the I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, people, people are raving about Andor, but I, I think they had gone kind of off track hmm. in that way. Um, now, I know a lot of people are talking about Disney's kind of complicity with China stuff. You know, Disney has been sucking up to Xi Jinping for, like, an eternity. Um, I, and I don't think Iger and Chapek are have much difference between them on that in, in that way. Um, are you surprised about the backward movement instead of finding someone new, instead of going back to a previous CEO? Well, I assume, I mean, they go back to him while they find, right, he's, a, he's an, an older interim. man. Mm. Uh, he's... Well, I guess he could be there a long time. Who knows? <laughs> Old people cling to their positions in politics, as we've uh, as we've discussed. But I assume they're kind of looking for an actual successor. And it just turned out he was not um, the guy. A lot of conservative people are wondering, or, or claiming credit rather, given the kind of high-profile fights that Disney had with Ron DeSantis in Florida over various things, saying that the way Chapek handled that um, invited blowback to Disney. Uh, conservatives punished. Disney, he was too woke, et cetera. Mm. 
don't know if there's truth to that. There might be, there's probably some truth to that, maybe. It, I don't know how many people actually, you know, canceled their Disney Plus subscriptions because they don't like uh, what, you know, Disney had to say about Florida's don't say gay law, that kind of thing. Maybe, maybe some people. Mm. Well, uh, last month, it just went away. It just went away, it went away off the prompt. I think I read what, I think I kind of said what oh. was. I didn't have enough to say. No, there was read. There was read, and I wanted to read it. Oh, I guess you did say it. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Um, what were you just talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Disney uh, being too woke, et cetera. Yeah. Go woke. Yeah. Go well, broke. Well, Is look, that the saying? <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting question uh, I think that a lot of people are going to have to face, because I, I do think there's some similarities between, Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go woke, go broke. Yeah, it's an interesting question that a lot of folks are going to have to face, and I think there are some similarities between what we were talking about in a, a different segment with Elon Musk in this. How much of these kind of corporate decisions are being driven by woke ideology and how much are being driven by advertising and other kind of business decisions? As long as those things are aligned, a lot of decisions can mm -hmm. look like they're being made because of wokeness, but if wokeness isn't getting you the dollars anymore, this is what a lot of uh, activists have said for a long time. Yeah, it looks like there's, uh, you know, banks and all of these kind of corporate institutions at your Pride Day parade, but how much allyship is right. there really the second that the public, you know, opinion turns and it no longer makes the money these, to look like they're sympathetic and to these your moral, cause? Some of these moral stands look rather foolish or rather or rather hollow when you're going to be very mad about whatever the laws is in Florida that you're mad about, which is fine. I, you know, I have expressed my issues with that law, but you're also going to avoid putting any plot lines in your content that are critical of China in order to appease their authoritarian government. Sure, sure. It, feels very, it seems very foolish. Also, these corporations are not your friends. Many of them have gone to some of these states that have weaker labor protections explicitly because they don't want to be uh, supportive of their own uh, employees, many of whom are also LGBTQIA mm -hmm. and the like. There was a story about a lot of the labor issues that people who work at Disney World were experiencing, terrible conditions, hot inside the costume no breaks, low pay, um, poor treatment, et cetera. And it is, you know, not cynical to point out uh, how much some of the grandstanding about some of these um, higher issue legal or higher order legal issues is to cover up from how they treat their own employees. When was the last time a major studio, a big film or a big TV show had a storyline that was even slightly critical of China. They used to. It just doesn't happen. You don't do it anymore. Everyone's oh, too afraid to, to do it. What? <laughs> all the bad guys. Are yeah, they can again. do it. Right. They're, no, it, that's true. They're always, yeah. they're Russian or they can be Islamic terrorists. Um, uh, 24, I, I was a huge fan of the show 24 back in the day. Um, they had a lot, they had a, a significant anti-China uh, oh, running plot line, uh, but that was back in, in, the, in the aughts. Mm -hmm. um, there, I guess, I guess, right, The Dark Knight, the second Batman film, has a slight kind of criticism of China. Mm. But this stuff doesn't happen anymore. They're, right, they're all Russian or Eastern Europeans or Islamic, or et cetera. Um, you can't criticize China. You can criticize the U.S. You can criticize every other government. Well, can't again, criticize China. How much of that is, I mean, like, these things are related, right? Is it just the Chinese market is so big? Right? Yeah, and, and the government, well, I mean, what but the Chinese is government will punish you. Right. I mean, but again, I'm not. Shuttle, they will turn I'm off not your distribution. Excusing it, but yeah. there, you know, there's a relationship. You know, even if the they government will punish you for act. depicting homosexuality too, and all these, all these, you know, want to be uh, pioneering for including same-sex 
relationships or something or in uh, in this programming. Like they they'll they'll brag. These studios will brag about doing that domestically for U.S. audiences, for European audiences, and then they will just cut that for the release for China because Chinese government won't allow you to do that either. It wasn't that it's LeBron absurd. James right made some comments um, uh, about China during I think the Hong Kong protest yep. and, and was forced to walk walk that back because of the NBA. Various various NBA figures have had to. Um, some people in. Uh, in uh, online gaming, a, a community I'm a bit more familiar with than the sports community, <laughs> if our viewers are catching on to that. Uh, Activision Blizzard, it's a gaming company. There was a tournament for um, for a popular online uh, game, and uh, so, uh, yeah, a player said something pro, uh, pro, is it pro Hong Kong or pro Taiwan? I can't remember. It was pro Hong Kong. And, uh, and, and yeah, they, that, they, in that tournament, he got like he had his winnings confiscated. Uh, it so shows the this shallowness. This is what of these I'm saying like, about our earlier segment about Qatar. Like yeah. this is what I'm saying. Well, no, like, I mean th- this is what I'm saying. That these, right, these stands look very these domestic. Everybody's a brave, you know, standing up for the the right thing, moral thing, but domestically. I there, there and are, then there there's are, greater. There are countries tyrannies. you're allowed to complain about, and there's countries you're not allowed to complain about. Yeah. So to the extent that the complaints are coming through, I think that it's worth questioning why we're being allowed. Not that the underlying complaint isn't like completely. Mm-hmm fair. But why is it being permitted in this instance? That's all. Mm. All right. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Get get better Marvel plot. I'm a big Marvel fan. <laughs> that, that's, that's what I'm, I'm saying. I'm asking. Get the get the MCU back under under control. That's my that's my request for Disney's new CEO. More Rising after this. England and six other soccer teams dropped plans to wear anti-discrimination armbands at the Qatar World Cup after FIFA threatened them with sanctions. FIFA notified seven European teams that players would be subject to sporting sanctions, including automatic yellow cards for wearing One Love armbands. The target of the anti-discrimination message was understood to be anti-homosexuality laws in Qatar. The Wall Street Journal reports. MSNBC's Ayman Maladeen commented on criticisms of Qatar hosting the World Cup and double standards of the U.S. Let's watch. While it's fair to question and criticize Qatar, I wonder if this debate is truly about migrant workers' rights and human rights, or is it that European countries who view themselves as the guardians of global soccer for their own selfish economic purposes can't stomach the idea that an Arab Middle Eastern country will host this venerable global gathering? I wonder if any of these American pundits grandstanding about human rights will call for the U.S. to be stripped of hosting the 2026 World Cup for the way elected leaders in this country and our judicial system in this country have rolled back reproductive rights or are trying to ban the word gay in public schools or even ban books. I think that's some transparently absurd whataboutism, but... uh... This sounds like a terrible idea to have hosted the World Cup in this country. I, but I, 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 I look. If you want to say you, there should not be political messages just in general on people's armbands because sports should try to be politically neutral, I guess that would be fine. Uh, this seems actually that this is clearly specifically targeted to appeasing this country's anti-homosexuality laws. But they should not have gotten themselves into this situation by having the World Cup there. Is what I would say. They also banned beer for people in the, for fans attending. Did you hear that? Is is alcohol ordinarily yes. allowed in the country? No. Okay, so that's consistent with the rules of but the country. But they're allowing it in certain of like special box, like people who paid 
extra or something, like mm. the, the very elite people well, are going well, to have I it. Wanna, it just seems bad. I want to go back to this question of it being um, whataboutism. Um, I don't know that I agree. I'm trying to work through this because, look, we talk all the time when we criticize the justifications for U.S. imperialism, something that we agree about, about how we cherry-pick human rights abuses, genuine instances of humanitarian um, need as being cravenly lifted up by the U.S. as a justification for our involvement. We talked about the women and children being exploited as a reason to um, invade Afghanistan. There was uh, the Gulf War being justified on this idea of, like, babies being thrown out of ventilators. We know this to be the case. And that's not—some of those are lies, but some of it are legitimate—some of it is legitimate bad things happening in other parts of the world. Right. It is true that fewer women learn how to read under Taliban control or whatever it is. And it does seem— similarly like a kind of a cherry-picking of wrongdoing. Again, genuine political stances and and kind of a political leadership that I would disagree with, obviously, on the merits, but in a way that might be calculated to justify American um, hegemony and American superiority that it is actually helping the well-being of the people of the, of the folks in this country. And when you look at how America moves through the world, you heard, you know, obviously Joe Biden saying he was going to make Saudi Arabia pariah and then justifying not uh, justifying shielding MBS for an investigation over the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And when you see all these inconsistencies about how we, there was a recent interview this past week with John Stewart, Condoleezza Rice, and Hillary Clinton, where they are still talking about what weapons of mass destruction and how America is so different than the rest of the world, and we have to intervene as America's policemen. It's what were they saying about weapons of mass destruction? That it, it was their, it was they were mistaken, and it, oh. we should all consider it to be a mulligan. You know, that, oh, yeah, that, yeah. that, that kind of a line. Our bad. You know, when you, when you yeah. see rhetoric like that, you know, I don't think that's entirely dissimilar for, from some people in the West who are taking this opportunity, having agreed to participate in this uh, event, to grandstand their own um, moral superiority when it's, I'm not sure that America can claim that ethical superiority when you look at how it's been behaving around the world. Mm, no, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think, while I am a massive critic of a lot of the foreign policy decisions um, the U.S. makes, as are you, I, I mean, I think morally it is fine to grandstand over a nation like Qatar. I, now, I don't think it's necessarily important to 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 you know signal or virtual signal on some kind of social issue that they have a difference with us on not which is not to say that i mean their their views are i think are wrong but i i understand why people get upset at like all like within the us context right all businesses say we're not going to do business in georgia or, or or indiana or wherever because of some religious freedom law but then they don't. Then they, oh, but but if Cutter doesn't want you to wear armbands, rainbow armbands, okay, yeah, we're we're not going to stand up to them. It's only ever standing up to you know bigoted conservative Christian Republicans here. Never standing up to a, a, a much worse version of well, religious yeah, I, extremism. Well, yeah, I think on the individual basis. I mean, there was a people were talking about a particular journalist who is gay and who, you know 
was wanting to wear the armband, had at one point, was pressured into not wearing it. You know, on an individual basis, I completely understand why people want to take their stands, and I have no feelings about their their ability to do so. I do think that there's a media aspect of this, though, that is invested in the idea of kind of heroic Westerners standing up to um, the government of Qatar, the people of Qatar, in a way that doesn't seem... That, that it seemed itself cherry-picked. So, for example, one could not go. Yeah. One could choose not to go. One could choose not to participate. Teams could choose to boycott. None of that is happening. Or, I mean, I guess some of that is happening, but people instead are choosing to go and then grandstand. So, to me, it feels akin to, like, one could argue that it's akin to visiting the Vatican and not wanting to follow the rules about covering your arms and legs while you're there. You know, I, it's perfectly fine to disagree with the Catholic Church, to criticize the Catholic Church, and to not also want to go and look at the Sistine Chapel. But if you want the benefit of going and seeing some artistic masterpiece or looking at it from a historical perspective, to go there and then loudly complain about the fact that it's hot and you don't want to wear a shawl so seems NFL to be— the NFL have a—or the NHL or the or baseball, basketball, et cetera, have rules against players kneeling during the anthem? Isn't this kind of like that? Well, I think that if people, if they have those rules, then players have the right to object and to boycott and to, and to end the league. Mm-hmm. But that's the, the question here is whether or not people are trying to have it both ways, going and participating in this event, playing in a country that did not just invent these rules overnight, that they know has a, a kind of a humanitarian standards that are not the same as what you would expect in that the world. And at the same time, I see, not, I, not the same, but bad. Well, from my, my, my perspective, they are. I also think that, I'm sorry, it's not both with two million people in jail and the largest incarcerated population in the world, despite only having a much smaller fraction of the world's population. I think that it is extremely narrow mind, like short-sighted to sit here and judge other people's countries and not have that same expectation, uh, the same judgment, as the news commentator there said, about what, what is America going to say that we don't deserve to hold an upcoming Olympic Games or whatever a kind of national event, global event, because of our own bad actions. Not to mention, it's not just about what happens in America. It's about what America is doing all across the world. So we can sit here and say, technically, we have rights to the United States of America. But what does it mean if we're toppling regimes, uh, acting in ways that are creating uh, slave, uh, you know, slave, slave prisons in Libya and destroying the civil rights of people all around the world to sit back, cross our arms and say, oh, we're innocent because technically we have, you know, a Chelsea in Manhattan, you know? But, but we let little girls learn how to read and we don't jail homosexuals. So there are some improvements we have over these countries that could be hosted. Which means what in the context of this conversation? Well, I mean, that's what we're, we're getting into a moral relativism here. No, we're, no, we're not. And I, I had this conversation actually recently on my podcast with Coleman Hughes. And we were kind of have this philosophical conversation about what it means that it's such a common rhetorical device. I'm sorry that conservatives use it, say, well, this is better than that. It is better today than it was 60 years ago for black people. Like what that, what those kind of arguments do is often derail more substantive conversations about how things could be improved and what is still wrong to day. So there's no problem with admitting that there's been improvement for, let's say, black Americans in the States. There's no problem in admitting that there are many, many respects in which the civil rights and living standards of people in the United States, including for women in the United States, is better than the people of Qatar. That does not absolve the United States of responsibility and accountability for our actions, many of which are invisible because we have a media class that doesn't cover what goes on in the rest of the world. And those of us like ourselves who are very aware of the negative effects of American imperialism, I think, should be cautious about why the media is choosing to 
draw contrast between Qatar and the United States at the same time that we're happy to avail ourselves of the resources and the events that are happening in Qatar, and at the same time that there is little to no criticism of the way that America enables um, despotic regimes all over the the, the world as long but as they I, I don't think support we have us to make economically. Excuses for Qatar because. America just had a ruling on abortion that a lot of people. Is it making with. excuses for Qatar? Did well, I make excuses? What, for no, Qatar? I think that, that, that media clip. I think he did. Yeah, he made excuses for uh, it Qatar. Was pivoted. What about it? And, well, you know, maybe that's bad, but. Oh, I, I didn't hear it that way, and I do think that there. I, you know, I'd have to go back and re-listen, but I think that there is a legitimate criticism, a legitimate scrutiny that should be given to why it is that the U.S. suddenly has an appetite to cover this um, when ordinarily it doesn't. And it is, is what very— What do you mean it doesn't have—the the ability to—the the apparent right to declare political uh, messages during sports games, like, that's a huge topic we've been discussing here. It ordinarily ignores the um, the kind of inequities that we see all over the world, including when it is politically convenient to do so. So, for example, in Israel, for example, in Saudi Arabia, and for example, our allies. So, one of the things that Hillary Clinton said in this interview, or maybe it was Condoleezza Rice, I can't remember which now, um, was that you know. Uh, uh, democracies don't invade other countries. Trying to make a distinction between, you know, when, when America intervenes and when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I saw, I think true. it was Kyle Kalinske who pointed out that America financially supports and is allies with something like 70 odd uh, despotic regimes all across the world. And so it really isn't about those. The, when, whenever there's these articulations of principle, over and over again, we see that it's not actually about principle. The principles are real and they exist in the abstract, they exist mm -hmm. outside of the world of politics. But when these politics Politicians, when these warmongers, when when the state and all, when the media class, which is very much tethered with the state, makes these kind of criticisms, it's often not because of the general principle. It's because they're advancing some kind of political um, practice, and that's not the individuals on the ground, not LGBT people who are individually um, concerned with this. But I do think it's worth bringing some scrutiny to why certain people are making these criticisms at this time. That's all. I think it's a perfectly fine thing to analyze. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll continue to get you updates on all the latest stories. There's some specificity for you. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we're available on Roku and other streaming services. See you later. All right. Bye-bye.